Coming to you from BAFTA's Piccadilly headquarters, this is Guru Live, a three-day celebration of film, TV and games. I'm Rihanna Dillon. If your first film is going to be a success, you're going to need a clever distribution strategy. Simultaneous multi-platform releases are becoming a mainstay of the indie scene, while in short film, building an online profile for you and your movie can take it from passion project to serious calling card. In this session, we hear from filmmakers, reps from major VOD platforms and those from distributors. Is the theatrical release still the holy grail for debut filmmakers? Let's find out. Here is director Sam Collins, the BFI's Ed Humphrey, writer Naman Ramachandran and Quentin Carbonell, director of acquisitions at MUBI. Your host is Kaleem Aftab. So I'd like to start just by asking um, the guys from the platforms... Um, can you tell me a bit about the BFI player and then a bit about MUBI and how you work? Sure. Uh, so BFI player is uh, the BFI's video on demand platform. Uh, we've been going now for, for three years and really it, it tries to do three things. Um, firstly, it's about creating a platform for new British film and for uh, foreign language and uh, documentary film that wouldn't necessarily get particularly wide distribution in the UK. So... We really want to make sure we give as much opportunity for people to see uh, those films that we think are important. Um, the second thing is around film heritage. So the BFI, as I'm sure most of you will know, has the, uh, the National Film and Television Archive, which is, is one of the finest in the world. And we're in the process of digitising that um, as quickly as we can, although it's a very, very slow business, very expensive. Um, by, the end, by the middle of 2017, we should have 10,000 newly digitised uh, pieces of film Available, and we've created a part of BFI Player called Britain on Film, where all of those uh, films are. So we want to create. We wanted to create a place where film heritage could be celebrated, and people can go and find their own their own kind of way through the archive. And then the third piece really is around um, kind of revisiting, reinterpreting, and re-exploring the canon of great films. So we wanted to. Um, what we found, and, and with the honourable exception of, of Mubi, we found that there was a real lack of diversity of choice around. Um, if you want to go and watch uh, great films um, that aren't necessarily contemporary, you really just struggle to find them on some of the mainstream platforms, um, again, other than movie. Um, so we wanted to make sure that there was somewhere that we could start to tell what the BFI considered to be uh, its story of, of cinema, both in the UK um, and around the world. So those are the three kind of reasons why we set up BFI Player. And do you approach British films differently from these classic films? We... <sighs> I'd say we, we like to emphasise um, wherever we can um, and celebrate British film. Um, not to say, but as a, as a, because we treat film as in, its, in its purest cultural sense, we absolutely cannot ignore international film in, in, all, of its, in all of its forms. And indeed, you know, we have deals with you know, Universal and Studio Canal, so, so you know, big, and kind of big majors and mini majors. So we, we do take content from right across the market, but also we'll make sure that we are capturing the essence of what we... Th- what we're trying to tell something about what is going on with British film, because ultimately that's really you know, our story to tell. And for MUBI, what's the story for you to tell? Uh, the story of MUBI is, uh, is pretty large. Now we're about to celebrate our 10th anniversary. Uh, it's been going on for uh, quite some time now, and we've been changing radically over the past four years away also to expose uh, cinema globally. The, the main things about MUBI are that MUBI is available everywhere in the world. Um, it was one of the first, if not the first platform really available like this. Um, first, uh, it was uh, offering a large selection of about 1,000 films per territory, you know, written authors, Peter Tchaikovsky, Agnes Varda, uh, wherever you were in the world. But we saw that it was really hard to do it as well as people such as the BFI, you know, to collect all these things and uh, really give it value to, to a large catalogue. And we took the, the reverse uh, way of curation and time. Um, in that way, we only select 30 films which we curate. We have programmers, real humans. Uh, that makes a difference. And um, we expose the films because of something. And we give you a specific time to watch them. Uh, we impose a time. It's a bit snob, but in a way, it is a very good way to give yourself time in a moment where it's very, very hard to always, you know, come to being busy or not having the time, just consuming snackable content, as they call it, which is a horrible uh, wording, I feel. But it's giving you the time to watch a two, other, two hours Ozu at some point in your life. But also... 
we have uh, special moments where we have seven hours long Lav Diaz films and also 30 minutes first you know, short film from young filmmakers from all over the world. But it's always in this 30 package. And every day, one is going after his 30-day life and one is coming. So it's always renewed and it's about wherever you are in the world, you can find great cinema. And is it classic films, new films? What's the mix? It's, it's an absolute mix. That's the right word. It's a curated mix of all the, the cherry picking you can do in the world. You can have the seven hour Lav Diaz from 2010. You can have a classic from Agnes Varda, 1960. Uh, you can have Orpheus uh, from Cocteau. And at the same time, you can have a 2015 film from the Quinzen last year in Cannes. So it's really about what we would like to show you at that precise moment because we feel it's interesting or we're also doing great partnership with, you know, any festival, the Edinburgh London Film Festival, uh, we're also releasing new films, which is something very important for us. Instead of uh, doing only, which is not a pejorative word, library, we're also now getting involved in uh, fresh films. Like we just nabbed uh, Arabian Nights from uh, Cannes Film Festival last year, and it opened a few weeks ago, and you guys can enjoy it now, volume one and two, and three upcoming. And how did you find that move, and also for you, for the BFI, from doing curatorial opposite freedom of choice for the, the push versus pull strategy, so to speak. We, yeah, it's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting dilemma because there is a balance to be struck. And certainly if you look at some of the major platforms like Netflix and Amazon, who've, you know, historically they've put literally thousands of titles uh, online at once, uh, you'll find that even they are now bringing their catalogs up and, and licensing less content because they're finding that people just aren't diving down into the, into the library. There's one of the truisms of, of VOD, even though there is can be an, an enormous amount of choice. People still tend to watch what you suggest that they watch. So it works very much like, a, like an EPG on a TV, you know? So if you're on page one or page two, you tend to naturally get more traffic than if you're on page 15, even if you've got the best channel. Um, and I think this is why one of the reasons why uh, Movies Approach has been so successful is because they say there's, you know, uh, people's attention spans are short. They're, they're, too much choice can be off-putting. And really, if, if you're in the mood to watch a film, you want to give someone a really concise list to choose from. Um, we haven't gone as short as 30, 30 films. We've, gone, we've got around about um, somewhere between 500 and 600 films. Um, some are on subscription basis, some are on a rental basis. But really, the, that era, I think, and if you even watch today, you know, marketing campaign from Sky or from Virgin Movies, they'll still talk about thousands of films available on demand and I don't think audiences really care how many films there are. You know, you just want to watch one. So someone who's going to someone who's going to take away a lot of that hard work and bring you a really well thought through program of you know, thirty, a hundred, hundred and fifty. That I think that for me that works that works better. It's uh, it's all about also you know the the brand and the, the spirit you've attached to it. Um, I mean people are going to go to the BFI because they know that the BFI has a profound respect for cinema. Uh, throughout the, the history and there is a desire for cinema. There is the, the problem with VOD, even if it's own name, uh, you have it's video on demand. Already video is a problematic term if you get a bit you know specific about it. And on demand, where do you where do you, when you go to a platform, are you driven by a desire of one specific film or are you driven by a desire of cinema? We try to cater for the latest. Uh, you, you don't go to movie because you want to watch a specific film, or you're very lucky because it's part of the 30. But it's really about, I want to watch you know, great films at any moment uh, of the month. And whether you want you know, some, something specific, we can cater for, or then you start to also um, bounce subscriptions together. Like For example, uh, you were explaining that you had subscription and transactional, so you can decide whether you want to rent the movie like you used to, or you have, you know, w- when you subscribe, it's an act as well to trust someone. So more and more people are getting rid of uh, some of their TV subscription, which are a big mix in the end of a lot of programs which are sort of linear, even if you have catch-up, and binding together subscriptions to BFI, to Mubi, to Netflix, bouncing from one, going to another, because there is, you know, this endless, you know, this pseudo-bottomless of, of content. It's not even films, it's just content. Like, when, when you're approached by someone saying, how many hours of content do you have? That's something you hear, hopefully, less and less, because they know that the people are caring more for what they want to precisely see at that moment, rather than just like sitting clueless in front of a, of a screen and you know just getting what is thrown at them without explanation. 
Okay, now I'd like to bring the filmmakers in. I'll start with you, Sam. Can you tell me a bit about your film and then um, the platform you chose and why? So I made a documentary about cricket, uh, which is obviously quite a specific thing. I suppose what it comes back to is that having come four years ago, I was a journalist, ended up making a, a documentary about corruption in the sport I was working in very quickly had to learn what it was to be a, f- a filmmaker. And for a lot of that, you're focusing on actually getting a film that people are going to watch. But then when you come to the end of that, and, and I actually did the film London uh, Build Your Audience thing, we were selected for that, which was very helpful in terms of really understanding what you're making and who is your audience, who are you going to get to watch it? You know, in the sense of, we had a cricket film, which was we were very lucky because that is you know, the second biggest sport in the world. You know, it's a huge audience in India and America and the UK and Australia and various places. How are you going to take that sport, sorry, take that film to to those people? What's the demographic of your audience? How old are they? What percentage of them are going to be online? What percentage of them are going to, you know, going to reach by conventional means? And And I suppose, actually, to flip your question, we didn't really prioritise on demand. We actually prioritised the theatrical release. Mm. Because for us, again, as a, we were a low-budget, independent documentary film, the, the, the exposure that we would get from a theatrical release to, in terms of free publicity, essentially, dwarfed anything that we could, we could get in the immediate term from online, which is, you know, as, as Quentin's just talking about, it's, it's so incredibly competitive online that there's a danger that if we had gone... If we'd focused on an online release, then our, you, know, you have your, your one day in the sun and then the film gets lost. Whereas what we knew, we had a campaign documentary. We knew it was going to drive news lines. So if we were strategic, and, and everything, you know, again, it's worth saying, I don't know how many independent filmmakers are, there are in this room, but you think when you're, you, know, you spend years on a film that when it comes out, everything is going to be very planned, very perfect. Often it's not like that. It happens in a few weeks. You have a window that you, you either have a decision, you take that window or you wait for maybe seven months because certain blockbusters will be coming out. We had a very time-specific film, cricket. We had to launch in the cricket season. So the film ended up going out almost, you know, just sort of, we, I don't want to say, we spat it out pretty much. <laughs> um, and I was like, you know, the, the, so we really had to think on the, on, on the fly in terms of choose the right festivals, seed the right stories into the media in the hope that then, when it actually came that the theatrical release was coming in four or five weeks' time, we would then use that to, to drive people into the cinemas. Now, had we been... Uh, you see, that is the point. What, what you'll get more is a, is a breakdown of the traditional model, which might be releasing a film in cinemas, and then X weeks later going on to, to online, X weeks later onto DVD, X onto TV... Often now, documentaries will realise, or films will realise, that they're only going to get one real stab at that publicity. So ideally, you would then bring your video-on-demand release down as close to your cinema release as possible. But we weren't able to do that, but that's what, in an ideal world, we would have done. But I suppose what I'm saying here, I'm fighting for theatrical release alongside video-on-demand, because getting that that exposure is, is absolutely invaluable for, for small films, I think. If, but, but, you know, you've got to understand whether your film has got the capacity to generate that type of news. Otherwise, it, that, that might not be the right route for you. Mm. It's a good time to bring in Narman because obviously your film went to Sundance and then you decided to go straight for On Demand and miss out on the theatrical release. Can you explain why that was right for your film and why your model, or Sam's model, doesn't suit your film? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, there's a number of reasons. Uh, we had sales agents uh, going into Sundance, which is uh, UTA, the United Talent Agency. And they were quite uh, clear that um, uh, this, this has to be an outright sale uh, because uh, in, our, in my personal experience as a, as a film journalist and with lots of independent film, uh, filmmaker friends, you go to a major festival and then you get a sales agent and then you drip feed it uh, territory by territory and platform by platform across at least three years. And uh, even then, at the end of the day, uh, you don't recover your costs. Um, and uh, so going into Sundance, uh, we were quite fortunate because uh, the, the trade papers, uh, IndieWire, Variety, Hollywood Reporter, Screen, they all picked out the film as one of the buzz titles of the festival. 
so which is obviously great for sales. So it just boiled down to um, a, a question of uh, you know who's the highest bidder, and obviously Netflix won won that battle. And um, and in terms of theatrical, we did uh, and they did give us the option of doing a small release in the UK. You know, just to generate some, as uh, Sam said, you know, to generate free publicity. And uh, so we looked at the at the at the costs of doing that. Uh, we didn't have a whole lot of time because um, the the film will show this year on Netflix, and they'll we'll know the actual date on the on Friday. And um, so it meant uh, we didn't have any money left. It meant uh, applying to the BFI for you know PNA funds. And uh, then, uh, bigger than that, uh, we had to find cinemas. So, uh, if you look at uh, the only uh, cinema chain in the UK that does not charge a, a virtual print fee is the Picture House Group. Mm -hmm. So, I think on, they announced on the 16th of February that they'll no longer be charging that. So, so and, but uh, as you can imagine, every indie filmmaker goes to them first. And if you go to any of the other groups, they take a 60-70% cut and you pay the VPF. Can you so, explain what the virtual print fee is? Uh, virtual print fee in uh, layman's terms is uh, when the cinemas went uh, digital, <coughs> all the old projection systems, the 35 mil project, uh, projection systems were replaced by digital projection systems. So, and obviously the cinemas didn't have the money to do that mass conversion at the same time. So. So the people selling them the projection systems, uh, they charge a virtual print fee so to recover the cost of it's amortized across cinemas. So the Picture House group is the only one who have paid off this cost, and they are not charging it on to the filmmakers. So, so to come back, uh, we just did the numbers, and we, we saw, it, saw that uh, if we release in the cinemas in the UK, we would actually lose money. And, uh, and rather than wait for those three years across the world, here, day and date, uh, it will show on uh, Netflix in 190 countries, and 75 million people will have access to it. So, so we were like, we can do this and move on to our next film. Was there any sense of disappointment that it wouldn't show in cinemas, or do you think that that doesn't matter so much for filmmakers anymore? Um, no, there wasn't uh, uh, any disappointment. Like, the, the film is directed by Q. Mm -hmm. Now, he's made, like, this is his seventh film. And uh, none of his films have had a theatrical release uh, because mainly, uh, uh, you know, the sales agents haven't been able to sell the films across the world. And in his home country of India, they are too controversial uh, to pass the censors, uh, like this one, for example. And, um, and uh, so, no, there was no disappointment uh, because we live in such a multi-screen world anyway. I mean, I love going to the cinema myself, but... Uh, um, in this case, it was a question of uh, getting the film in front of the biggest audience possible as soon as possible. And would you have been disappointed if you'd gone straight to a VOD platform rather than... Well, it depends. If I had a big fat Netflix check <laughs> in my pocket, um, I probably wouldn't be here today. I'd be off somewhere on holiday. Um, but... Um, no, I think, I think what Naman said is absolutely... You've, you've, got to, you've got to play it as it unfolds. You know, again, we were, we were very lucky because, you know, picture houses... We got into picture houses at the, at the exact moment where, if we hadn't, then we would have been stuffed for the reasons that, that Naman talks. So you know, ultimately, you want people to watch your film, and, and you've just got to make... You've got to play those decisions as they come, you know. And, and I suppose one of the big mistakes that I made as a... And a very amateur um, producer-director was that I had not factored exactly how expensive a, a, a theatrical release would be. You know, so we, even though we got theatrical, we couldn't maximise our theatrical because you know, by, it, it reached the point where it was literally me on the phone ringing up cricket clubs in you know, North Yorkshire going, we've got a screening. And they were like, what? Piss off. You know, just, you know, and it's... Um, it is... It's not glamorous, that outreach, you know, but you have to do it. If you're going to fill cinema screens, you know, you've, got to, you've got to be prepared to do whatever it takes. So, you know, obviously, the flip side of that is that you can, there is, you've got some sort of control. You can sense how many people are watching the film, how it's going. The difficulty, I suppose, with Netflix, you know, and we hopefully will, will end up with a, an SVOD. We're working on an SVOD deal at the moment, which is, which is great news. But 
that there is a t- some trepidation with that because they pay your fee, they take your film, and then you have absolutely no sense really of how the film is is doing from that mm. moment, which is slightly terrifying from a filmmaker because you've spent you know it's your baby and you're giving it away and and uh, but this is this is a sense of. Um, Throughout the whole process, because again, Naman's talked about sales agents, about distributors. Again, these are incredibly difficult decisions you have to take. To what point? Who do you trust to distribute your film? Because again, we had a we had a, a film, a very niche audience, but an audience that was actually, you know, that niche was quite big. But we backed the fact that we knew how to get to them better than a conventional distributor. So I, I worked with a company called Dartmouth Films, who are excellent. They work on documentaries that aim to make a difference. They've just got one out at the moment called The Divide, which is very good. Um, the I don't know why I'm plugging them. I didn't, that. <laughs> I, I didn't get told to say that. Um, the point was that we ran a very low-budget release ourselves, yeah. which was tailored around back the fact that we knew we could get the film to people. The difficulty is you give the film to a distributor who will, you know, they will work on volume, you know, if it comes, I don't want to, to demean distributors, a lot of whom are great and do a very good job, but there, are, there is a real danger that your film will end up with the wrong distributor who won't understand what it is, who won't understand its audience, who will say, no, we just can't justify it because there's minimal returns, really, as, as Naman said, unless you catch fire. <coughs> and, and, you know, it can be the same with a sales agent. If you choose the wrong sales agent, yeah. they, they will give you the spiel that they've got their ins with Netflix they won't come good, and you'll be, you'll be left, you know. And uh, speaking of uh, sales agents, uh, we were approached by a couple of very prominent uh, sales agents. Um, and, uh, you know, before deciding to entrust UTA with it, because UTA are, you know, our personal agents as well. So uh, they all, uh, what they said uh, made our blood run cold, which is, they said uh, we would not recommend an outright sale, we would do it uh, territory by territory. And, um, and then, uh, luckily, I knew some people who worked uh, for those uh, sales, sales agents. And they said, which basically means that uh, uh, they are, uh, they'll, expense, uh, they'll expense the film on everything. So, so if they sell uh, you know, Germany for, say, 100 euros, uh, you'll probably see one. And so it's, it's terrifying. It is it's it? terrifying. Yes, mm. you've got to take the right. You've got to get the right people in your corner, especially yeah. if you're doing it for the first time. That is the most important thing. Find people in the industry you trust, and you know that try and try and find a way through. And often it's an inexact science, but you know it, it's it's worth taking that trouble. I think. Mm. But you did an outright sell to Netflix, who paid a large sum of money for your film. But how does it work, for example, with? BFI, maybe with a film that's a bit more like The Death of a Gentleman that had come out and you're looking at it, how do you work out a deal with the filmmakers? So we, because of the way that we're, so the BFI is obviously we're we're a public institution, we're not-for-profit, so our our ambition is necessary to drive the biggest commercial growth, although we do operate commercially. Um, Our role really in the the films that we pick up is, is to share revenue um, and that revenue share really is about cost recovery in the first instance. Um, I think one of, the, one of the things to say about running a platform is that very few platforms make any money whatsoever. You know, that's a, that's a, um, one of the things that's, that's kind of uh, one of these sort of unspoken truths about, about video on demand is actually to, to, make a, to build a really big, successful uh, video on demand business, you need a lot of scale. You need to be, you know, you need to be global, um, and you need to have really kind of exclusive product. We we're not in that space. Uh, so what we're trying to do is we take non-exclusive deals and we share revenue back with the distributor or with the filmmaker, depending on who sells us the film. Um, and that really works for us because we, our focus is primarily about making sure that we're a developing the, the careers of the filmmakers, so making sure that they have a route to to an audience, and also that we are creating a place where audiences can can find a really wide range of of content. So. Yeah, so a deal with the BFI um, for video on demand is probably different to, to most of the other platforms. Mm-hmm. Insofar as we would we would almost always you know do a do a revenue sharing deal. And how curatorial is it? How many films do you say get given to you or asked for you to watch compared to the numbers you actually put on? Um, I think we we because we're relatively new and relatively small still. We don't have a queue necessarily a huge queue of people trying to trying to um, trying to place their film with us. Certainly there are. Um, there's a lot of 
I'd say there's a lot more content out there in terms of, of new films than there is routes to market. So there is a, quite a lot of oversupply, I would say. Um, and we pick up films based on some of the kind of key curatorial decisions that we make. Either they're films that the BFI has already in some way invested in, whether we've kind of put money into production or we've invested into um, the distribution of the film, or it could be a particular director that we feel um, is, you know, um, showing promise or has realised that promise and is, is, is creating some incredible work. Um, or it could be something that we featured in the London Film Festival, uh, which is obviously a big, a big kind of you know um, moment for us, where we where we kind of try and capture the best of the international scene and bring it to the UK. And so, a film that's appeared in the London Film Festival, then we would very often like to pick that up as well. And how about for movie? What's the it is actually very, very close. I mean, on the, on the revenue share basis. Actually, I mean, Mubi today does three things. Uh, the first thing is very, very close to what the BFI does, and it works very, very like uh, revenue share basis. We uh, show the film, you know, we push it among the 30s, and then we see how much, how many views the film generated, and we calculate a prorata of uh, a percentage of the subscription money we get, which we, so there's a percentage for the right holders, and that is divided based on the number of views. Uh, it's very fair. Uh, every film has the same chance because they get all the same exposure, so that's uh, our main uh, core basis. Uh, the second thing is, for example, we released globally recently uh, an amazing documentary called The American Dreamer that maybe some of you got the chance to see uh, The Curzon Dark House or Picture House Central. And um, this, uh, we tend to do either revenue share or we can also pay some flat fees uh, up front for the direct exhibition of the film in one or more territories. And the third thing we're, uh, third thing we're doing now is uh, the Arabian Nights model, which is very, very close to the all rights model that exists already for theatrical distributors, which we're, we're getting in, which is often uh, an MG, and then you recoup, you know, based on uh, the fees you got, the PNA, which has been uh, mutually agreed uh, with uh, the, the co-distributor or, you know, the, the seller, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it's, uh, it's three things which are, one is very close to BFI, one is very close to the theatrical distributor, and the middle one is kind of a hybrid between the two. Can you just explain to some of the audience what an MG is? Someone... I mean, an MG, very simply, is a minimum guarantee. And it's say that, for example, I can pay uh, a certain amount for your film, and then whatever I generate, uh, I will not pay you until I've recouped that minimum I paid. So basically, let's say I gave... Uh, 10,000 for something which is an MG and until I generate 10,000 on my side you won't get any more money from me that's how it works it's a very classical you know, type of deal in the theatrical or even in, uh, in VOD in general um, but um, something which is very important that uh, everyone here has highlighted is how um, strong you need to understand all these parameters and also the players which are you know, using them. It's very easy when you're starting, and I'm, I'm talking with facts because I was in the same situation, but on the other side, to be, like, be thrown terms at you or you know, market ideas, or as you were saying, I'm with Netflix, et cetera, et cetera, I'm with movie. It's very easy to mesmerize you and say, oh, okay, I'm gonna sell you fairy powder, and it's gonna be great, and then nothing happens. So it's, it's very, you have to have a, a deep understanding of what your film needs and who you can do something with. Like the, the American Dreamer uh, adventure we had with uh, an amazing uh, seller, which was Bomb360, which, which is a very interesting company, which is between you know, marketing, events, releases in the US, great people. Uh, it's, it's been crazy because basically we had the film everywhere in the world in movie. Uh, we did some event screenings, so as I was saying, a few weeks in, a, in, a, in the Duck House, in Picture House Central. We did a midnight screening in France. We did some screenings in the U.S. You see, it's a, it's a bit all over the place, which was great. Getting a, a physical release, not an official one, as per you know, the, the common knowledge, but something. And this global release generated price as well. And that was you know, a good thing for, the, for that film specifically. But it doesn't mean that's always, that would be a good thing for all the films. And um, j just a, a quick thing, since I'm thinking about it, thinking about your, uh, your adventure as well, uh, a, a, an interesting model you guys could have a look at. It's, called, it's a film called Indie Game the Movie. It's, uh, it's a, a video game documentary that's been released like four years ago now or something. And whether you like you know, this film or this kind of documentary, etc., it's a very interesting adventure because that film was based on video games 
uh, exploration, uh, three video games creators that you know you see how they do, etc. And it had a very specific pass because it was appropriate for that film. I think there is a case study online that you can watch, and uh, I've had the pleasure to share a panel with uh, one of the directors of that film, and it's a very interesting thing to see what did work for that film. That might not be the case for all the films, but that was, you know, there was a Netflix deal involved, then uh, a deal with us, then a deal with uh, Steam, which is a video game platform usually, so, you know, nothing that most of the filmmakers would do usually, but that works for that film. So, again, like, browsing the options and seeing who are the good people to partner with are very important things here. Did you browse the options, Sam, and what made you go with Amazon? Well, actually, our distributor, distributor handled that. I mean, by that stage... We were, you know, we, we, we were so, so exhausted after the theatrical um, because, it, you know, as I said, I mean, we, we wrapped our film in June the 1st. We, we launched in Sheffield on June the 4th. We uh, went back into the edit suite and we, we had, we actually, London, Naman works at the London Indian Film Festival July 20, 18th or something. And then we were in cinemas August 7th. So it, it happened so quickly. Um, you know, and, and um, I think... Um, we, we were obviously we were trying for, for Netflix. It actually touched wood. We may get lucky through the Indian market because, again, I think, I think as Ed was talking about earlier, a lot of these, these organisations, if you go into it thinking you can target Netflix at this stage with a UK-based film, you've got to be very, very lucky because organisations like Netflix have spent so much money buying up a lot of content several years ago. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, actually, they're realising that they've got, as you say, too much. So you've got to have a way in. Naman, obviously, has made a, an Indian film, and Netflix are breaking into the Indian market. So there's a lot of much... You see what I'm getting at? A lot of it is really understanding what is my film? Who is its audience? Is it going to break... Does it have the capacity to break out of that audience? Um, you know, which markets... Does that audience is that is that film going to appeal to? Is there money in those markets? What's the best way to get the money? I don't, I don't mean to sound sort of too clinical, but that's really how I sort of am thinking about. If I'm thinking about a next project, if I'm thinking about where is the money coming from in the end, because it's you can't just go into it idealistically thinking I'm going to make a film about a shoelace and it's going to reach the entire world. You know, you've got to you've got to come into it and think who is you know. Otherwise, you're potentially wasting your time. I don't even know, I can't remember what your original question yeah, is. But it's, um, I, I suppose what, what, I'm, what I'm saying is that, um, I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> Could uh, I go back to the original question? Yes. Did you ever consider perhaps trying to go online on your own? Was that a possibility, like you went for a theatrical yeah, model? Yeah, we have been, we've been, we've been to- We've been talking with various people. We talked with Vimeo, for example. With, with, you know, our, our UK distributors took it to Amazon in the UK. We had a complex situation because we are we had a set, a, a set of. Thank you for reminding me what question was. I know what I was doing <laughs> um, we had a quest, We had a set of of archive footage within our film, which cost again anybody who's making a sports film here or, or ever does in the future. Or anything involving archive footage, the costs are phenomenal. Same with music, you know. So we licensed it originally for theatrical, for festivals in the UK. Then we expanded that to theatrical in the UK. Then the leap from that to the world is huge. You know, so we were in this horrible sort of stasis where we had this film. It's getting loads of publicity. Um, all we want to do is take it to our big market, India, as quickly as we can. But we can't because we need to find x tens of thousands to, to do the archive mm. so obviously then in terms of maximizing that with a um you know with a, with an online platform well because basically the platforms now you know probably will want to do a worldwide deal or, or the, the netflix is the mm. the um the, the the vimeos but you've got to have the rights in place so we finally sorted that and we're finally in the in a position to mm. to do it but but it goes back to what i was saying it is Inexact, you know. If you're an independent film, it, often it just happens, and you've got to just try and make the best of it and, and stay in there. So, Norman, he brought up an interesting point about going through India. Do you think? But you did the deal in the US, so I'm a bit. 
Do you think um, it was because of the Indian market, or do you think they were looking for the world market? Um, so a number of things. Uh, one, obviously, uh, the fi- film premiered at Sundance in January, and Netflix launched in India in December. So the timing was very good. Uh, secondly, um, Brahman Naman is entirely in the English language. So it is, you're not limiting, uh, uh, it is for a world audience. And, uh, and, and with subtitles uh, wherever required, like in Spain, Italy, etc. Um, so in that sense, uh, it's, a, it's a global product. It's a UK-India co-production. Uh, yes, I think the timing did have uh, something to do with it. But as I mentioned before, the fact that it got this uh, tsunami of uh, press. And uh, I mean, going in, like, we were, we were pretty much besieged. Uh, like, we, the first three days, we were just doing press. And, uh, and we were not expecting this at all. I think, I think what happened was uh, we released a one-minute teaser, uh, which kind of proved that uh, it's, uh, it's rude, it's crude, it's a sex comedy, it's set in the 80s, and it's in English. I mean, what's not to love? So. <laughs> <laughs> well, did you have any worry about giving your film away, to, so to speak, saying to Netflix, okay, you've paid us this much up front, now it's up to you to do? Um, not at all. I mean, to go back to what you asked earlier um, about the whole cinema experience, we had five sold-out uh, shows uh, at Sundance, so we, we saw it with a paying audience, and one of them was at a multiplex uh, in uh, Salt Lake City, where you don't get the usual festival types, it's just members of the paying public. And then we had a sold-out screening in L.A., and it's showing on Monday, next Monday in New York, and that's sold out as well. So the satisfaction of uh, watching it with with a paying audience, uh, all the entire team has had it. Uh, And uh, and no, we were just uh, happy to um, move it on to its uh, eventual home and uh, and move on. And, uh, you know, it's a luxury that many uh, independent filmmakers don't get for a few years. you know, so here we are uh, done and dusted, and uh, we are working on other stuff. <laughs> I mean, it, it is worth you know saying again. Your your film is is very you know it's it's a young film, isn't it? Yeah. You know, very whereas young. whereas I've got a in my position, I had to reach a seventy five year old bloke in Bradford, <laughs> you know, who's going to know that he can go and watch a film, you know, similar in in Cornwall, wherever it is. You know, they 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 have a, they you're not going to get that guy to go online and, and get the film on YouTube for example, or, or Netflix. But you will get him to go to the cinema. So it totally depends on what your film is, I think. Yeah. And it obviously helps if you make a brilliant film. Can you tell me um, what the type of audiences that come onto the BFI player and movie? Is it a young audience or is it a range? Is it changing? We, um, I think our audience is, is probably, in terms of their age, is younger than the, the classic BFI audience in venue. Um, so I think that really our core is, is probably about 30 to 50. Um, and what we're finding is that amongst um, those, the, those people that are becoming comfortable using digital platforms, that is now reaching a kind of almost a, a tipping point into that, that kind of mainstream household generation. And certainly, you know, platforms such as BBC iPlayer have really, in the UK, speaking specifically about the UK, they've, they've really kind of, you know, taught a generation that are now reaching their, you know, their kind of their, their family years, if you like, um, that they are, they are, people are comfortable using a variety of different devices to go and watch online. So we're finding that that kind of on-demand audience is creeping older. Plus, obviously, the younger age, what we're trying to do is trying to capture those people who, you know, aren't necessarily even ready for, you know, uh, a Netflix-style product. They're still uh, very much in YouTube world, and they are finding that there's, you know, the other thing worth saying is that there is, you know, 150 million amazing, well, actually there's 150 million channels on YouTube. Some of them are amazing. And then there's, so another job that we have to do as a, as a platform is trying to turn our gaze to, to that audience, which is, you know, from, you know, 12, 13 up to mid-20s who spend an awful lot of their time on YouTube watching great, you know, films, you know, and, 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 but they may not look like films to us, but they're certainly films that are telling stories and, and expressing ideas. So our kind of job is to try and, you know, make sure that we have an offer which, you know, hits our core audience, let's say 30 to 50, but then also we are, we're looking at, you know, outreach. So can we, what, what does the BFI player look like if it were on YouTube or if it were on, you know, whatever the next platform is, Snapchat or, you know, um, or kind of Instagram. So, I mean, and, and we are 
far away from having an answer to some of those questions, but we at least know that, that the audience that is being developed on those platforms will eventually be maturing into an audience who is willing to you know, start, to, start to pay more often a, a subscription or a rental price. Um, but yeah, that's a kind of, to answer the question, it's about 30 to 50. Mm. And um, let me change the question a little bit for you before I throw it out to the audience. Is how do you, once you take on a film, work with the filmmakers? Do you say, we know how to advertise it to our audience? Or do you say, okay, this is the film, help us to get this audience that you want? Or what audience are you looking for? Um, I'm going to reply to your question. The first thing I want to mention about it is that the, the interesting thing is to see how things are converging as well in terms of audience. I mean, for example, the BFI is this emblematic place where you go and watch films from today and from the beginning of the cinema all together, and you can find young students elderly, 40-year-old uh, teachers, like everyone can go there. And it's going digital. For us, we build our brand on digital with a very, very similar audience and no going theatrical. So we're seeing all this interest and audience converging uh, together. And the, the best way to, to build on this existing, you know, growing audience is also to communicate with the distributor and very often with the producer and the director. Uh, there's a lot of moments where, I mean, at Mubi, we have signed deals, I think now, with more than 670 right holders. So that includes directors, producers, sales agents, uh, studios, distributors, like everything you can imagine. And very, very often, we are in discussion to say, so how can we do things together? Like we know, we know how to reach our people. We try many, many things, as you were saying, like there is Instagram, there is Facebook. There is even multiple ways to use Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all that. And it's, it, it can begin with very simple things. Like when I'm going to post about your film, please retweet it. Please say something. Please say it's on movie. Please say you have this. Um, or if you do this on our side, we're going to do that as well. Uh, we've done you know, partnerships, for example, with this uh, amazing distributor called Eureka. And at times we've worked with them with fresh releases saying as well, enjoy the film and movie. By the way, the Blu-ray is available here. And it's just things like that because everything communicates together. We've had you know, uh, little leaflets in DVD boxes. Uh, we've advertised things as well. It's, it's very organic. We don't sell ourselves as a mall say, okay, so here's the term sheet. Just tick the boxes and whatever you say you'll get. It's really about what works uh, the best. So yes, for example, with Junoon from Paul Thomas Anderson, it was an amazing story for us because basically uh, PTA uh, is a movie subscriber. We had no clue about that. I mean, you know, we have quite a few now, so it's, uh, it, it's a very uh, amazing community we have here. And uh, we don't go peeking, so is there this guy, you know, subscribers? And, uh, and he reached out to our support box saying, oh, guys, I really like what you're doing. Uh, you have this amazing Jean Roland um, uh, retrospective on Movie US. As I, I, don't, I mean, I don't know how many of you know Jean Roland. It's not a great question, but it's a very specific, you know, uh, group we're uh, targeting with uh, with such a retrospective. And it's a director we love, but we know that we're not, you know, going to make one hundred thousand subscription on top of that. So it's uh, it's all, you know, part of our catering for a great cinema. But we were so amazed that he communicated with us based on this. And then we build up this relationship with him. We learned that he knew us through Martin Scorsese, who was uh, a great partner to begin with when we, uh, we started the movie. And, um, and, you know, all worked together because of discussion and exchanges we had with those filmmakers, their producers and friends. And, uh, and we ended up, you know, releasing Junoon, uh, Day Plus One. It, it premiered at the New York Film Festival on the 8th of October last year, and it was globally worldwide on movie on the 9th of October. And uh, that was, you know, that was a very different film from his, uh, his film with Joachim Phoenix. I'm not saying that in a qualitative term, it was just a different film. And even as a filmmaker, when you would do multiple films, you will see that all your films will be, uh, there's a lot of films that will be different from one another. So again, within your, your, yourself being, you will have different paths to take to exhibit your film. Maybe something worked amazing for your first film, but it might not work the same way for your second one. So Junoon, we had this global release, which was fantastic because, again, we did all those screenings in Turkey, in Mexico, in France, here, in the US, uh, in Germany. 
and that went from screenings at Soho House, at Popular Cinema in Marseille. I mean, we did a, a screening in the in the third. Um, I don't know how to say that in English. Actually, sorry for my French. Uh, circumferences of of Marseille, which is a very poor and very popular neighborhood, and uh, and we had about 100 people turning out for that film that probably no one have ever heard of Paul Thomas Anderson mm. there, and uh, because you know it was this music. I would almost say documentary, it's like proof of, of concept, this album being made with all these amazing musicians. And, um, and he was communicating, and that was the, a great way to, to make that film exist. And now the film continues to tour festivals, it continues to do events. Uh, the team was here at the Barbican not so long ago, and um, that was a great experience. And quickly, what I quoted for the American Dreamer was the same. It's uh, it was amazing because so the same conference I was with the indie game, the movie guy. There was also the our bond friends and uh, and Lauren Schiller, who is the co-director of American Dreamer, uh, was here as well. And uh, he, he was he was saying basically, the, the American Dreamer was made 40 years ago, and when it was made, it got a, a release mainly in the U.S. And, uh, and that's about it. And it got re-released um, recently, so on movie, and uh, got also screenings. You know, as I was saying, in London, in LA, etc. And you were saying, I never got so many, so much press. I never got so many inquiries. Like even people asked to show my film in theaters in Nepal. But mm -hmm. it was really, you know, the, the reach that movie managed to create, and all the work we provided with the PR, all the press, all the communication, everything. Uh, that effort built up to communicate the film beyond his expectation, and that was you know, the best gift we could have. It's like on top of you know being able to show a film, being able to you know to, to make so the film can make money. Uh, the filmmaker was really glad it's been with us. So that's you know uh, that was a, a great story of uh, working together. Once you signed your film over to Netflix, did you actively? get involved with the marketing to, of your film to ensure that it was getting the right amount of clicks, it was reaching your audience, or do you just take the check and go home? Um, no, it's, um, it's a very uh, uh, interactive process. Um, uh, Netflix uh, are planning a, a big marketing push around the film ahead of its release, and, uh, so, and one of them is right here, uh, the person handling the account. Um, and... Uh, uh, named and shamed, uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, so so uh, they are working very closely with us to um, walk us through the marketing process, and they've got some elaborate plans, uh, which you'll be seeing in the next uh, few weeks. And, and so we are involved in every step of the way. And and the director, for example, uh, he's right now working on the artwork for the marketing plan. Hi. Um I guess it's a question for the two platforms um, and in slightly different ways. Um, for the BFI player, um, you obviously, the BFI do a lot for upcoming filmmakers and funding um, through the regional uh, agencies and stuff. Um, how does the platform support upcoming filmmakers and maybe first-time feature makers? Um, and sorry, and for uh, Mubi, um, similarly for for upcoming first time feature makers, how can they expose their films to your curators and uh, get on Mubi? Essentially. Um, so yeah, we are uh, we're obviously as part of the the ecosystem that the BFI is. You know, we we kind of invested in you know, emerging film talent. We invested in you know distribution. We invested in kind of skills training. And, and BFI Play is definitely part of that overall journey. So if you look at a film like Lilting, um, you know, which I think came from Microwave, was, uh, that was a film that we had. We can never, as part of our funding... So if we were, if we were involved in, in awarding money into a film or the BFI had a, an investment stake in a film, we couldn't in any way beholden the distributor or the producer to put it onto BFI Player. So we wouldn't re require them to do it. But we would certainly always want to have that film on our platform so that we could almost complete the story. So we don't want to be, you know, we want to, don't want to be involved in every phase of that film and then, and then miss the final one. Um, that said, there's, there's obviously, um, you know, we have a, a curatorial process that happens along, alongside, you know, our day-to-day -day work. So we don't necessarily have to pick up everything and we don't pick up everything and sometimes people don't want their content to appear on our platform. So... 
Um, but yeah, the, the, there is, the BFI is 400 people who love film. So everybody who works in my team digitally are, you know, are as well versed in what's going on as, as any other part of the organization. So we try and make sure that even though we're the digital team running a platform, we're actually still film lovers. I know the same applies to movie as well, is that you know, these platforms are, are staffed by, by film lovers. So, so, yeah, so to answer the question, we would, we would um, look to keep an eye on everything that's being produced by the BFI in all its different places and make sure that we're in the right place to try and get those films at the end. For people that don't get through the BFI system, it's quite hard to get funding yes. through the BFI. Does that, like, yeah, for, other, for everyone else? <laughs> so, everyone, yeah, I mean, so our kind of... We need to, there is, as I said earlier on, there is, there is a big oversupply, as far as we can see, of films seeking to get released in the UK. And we have to use some of the kind of the, the criteria that the BFI has used. So, for example, if a film has been seen by the BFI and they've passed on it for a particular festival or for funding, something like that, then there needs to be something then added on extra for it to, for it to then to be going to BFI player. Not to say that we would, we would you know, make it difficult, but I think it's all about the lens that we put on it is the audience we speak to, how can we add something to that, to that film? So I totally understand that it is, it is really difficult sometimes because there are, you know, there are very few platforms like us and you know, there are an awful lot of films out there. But we make sure that we see everything. That's the very least we can do. So we make sure we see everything. And at least you know, a couple of BFI people will have watched every film before we say yes or no on it. So we do take a lot of care in every decision we make. And even if it's a, a negative decision, we make sure that we kind of hopefully give feedback. And if we're not, you know, we should be. Hi, uh, you were talking about theatrical release and how um, you can benefit from the publicity that goes along with that. Um, when self-distributing through DVD, uh, SVOD or VOD, is there any way to kind of still cash in on that publicity? Obviously a lot of the films that get released to the cinema, the DVD release will kind of recycle some of that publicity, but is it possible to harness any of that without a theatrical release? Is that for, for, um, yeah. Uh, again, it's just finding good publicity, good, good publicists, whether you're going to do the, if you're going to do the publicists just... Publicity yourselves, um, again, finding the outlets who are going to carry the story and take it to your audience. Um, it all comes back to the same stuff, identifying your audience, how are you going to get to them? And, um, you know, and, and whether, whether your film is available on, on DVD or, or theatrical or, or, or VOD, that, that should work. I mean, I suppose... When it's a small film, what you're trying to do is, is spread it by, by word of mouth. So, so I suppose that's the, the danger is that unless your uh, initial publicity um, boost is enough to carry the story for several weeks, that it might fizzle. So that's, that's why you've just got to think as strategically as possible. What have you got? What, what is going to interest people? How can you prolong that? Do you have to go through a publicity agent to get onto no. some review lists? Or? No, but you, you just then need to do the dirty work, you know, find, out, find who the journalists are. You know, yeah. there, there's never been a greater possi- you know, capacity to reach people than there is now, you know, through, whether it be twi- everyone's on Twitter, Instagram. You know, again, and, and that's, that's what comes down to, depending on what you've got, you can be creative with teasers and send it out to people, grow suspense, you know, it's... Um, and, and build your own build your own audience. If you're working on a project over four years, you know whether you if you crowdfunded it, that's an audience you've got say several hundred people right from the start. You know you've got to. It's about building that community around your film, building the excitement, and then I suppose you know that publicists do this for a living, so generally they will know how to expand it as much as possible. But you can still do that. It's just knowing your film. So I'm interested to know your, your experience of doing this, this the non-traditional distribution as well, just in terms of those calls you're making to the cricket clubs, things like that. Yeah. I'm working on a film that we're going to be doing something really similar over the next few weeks. So, you know, because it, this is a whole new kind of event cinema now, isn't it? Yeah. So how well did that go down? You know, people thinking about having to book cinema seats in the same way they used to book theatre seats. It's a kind of different way of thinking, isn't it? And a different kind of mindset for people to... So did you do events around your screenings as well? Yeah, we do... spent a lot of my last few months travelling to obscure parts of the UK to do Q&As. You know, there's, there's other ways. There's R-Screen. I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with R-Screen, which is you can empower your audience to, yeah. um, to, to, to book their own cinema screenings and fill them themselves. It's great for engaging your, fa- your, your audience and getting them to reach out to their friends, etc., um, but yeah, undoubtedly with, with theatrical, there's got to, generally you've got to, 
the more reasons you can give people to leave home and go to the cinema, whether that be event screenings, you know, again, if you, if you are working on a subject which is to do with music, you could have a big, um, you know, what was it, the Backstreet Boys film documentary, they had a huge... I know, but, I mean, we laugh, but, like, they had a huge event premiere, um, you know, which beamed around the world. They made their money back in about 37 seconds or something. You know, and, and it's, um, you know, it, it, it's not glamorous, you know, but independent film, you, you, you've just got to put in as much as you can and hope that you, you, you make the right decisions and get something back at the end of it. And how many screeners did you have like that? I think we've had, I don't know, but I think we've had several hundred you know, okay. you know. I mean, we've we've been probably in about seventy locations in the UK, and um, but you know, again, I would say the the biggest learning I've had from 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 this last few years is is understanding what I don't know. So you know, so I I um, partnered with with Dartmouth Films, you know, who who have done this. They they had one about the miners' strike called "Still the Enemy." Then the divide again. As I say it's about targeting. Those are about targeting the right groups who are going to take your film to the right people so I could not have done this myself it's those guys knowing how to how to make independent films work that made it a success uh, it's for the uh, the platform guys so um, Ed and Quentin just um, in terms of the on the market side so how, how much how much of the submissions you get are from sort of distributors and, and how much of it um, is direct from from filmmakers themselves it, um, it varies a lot and it varies also depending on the time frame uh, the Festival de Cannes is launching very soon, and I have thousands of submissions these days, uh, just to give you an idea, thousands. And um, it's, uh, of course, when the festival is over, it jumps onto the next festival, and that's mainly from uh, young directors. And um, it's uh, just, just to tell you a story on how we proceed with those submissions and how we proceed with the things as well we see ourselves. Um, there is a, a young Canadian filmmaker, she's called Chloe Robichaud, and she had an amazing film called Sarah Prefers to Run in Cannes in 2013. And uh, I've seen that film, as I've seen right after uh, Blue is the Warmest Color. And I think I loved her film as much as I hated Blue is the Warmest Color. <laughs> and um, it's, uh, you know, it's my taste. I'm not presenting movie in there. It's, we're all you know, different curators and, uh, and different uh, choosers in the team. And my Spanish colleague loved Blue is the Warmest Color, for the example. So it's, uh, and so she would love to have a movie. And when I saw her film, the first thing I did was reaching out to the producer and saying, I loved your film. Like, can we have it, like, now? And uh, she's like, yeah, you know, it's complicated because it's E1, et cetera, and uh, we, we get into, you know, it's, it's a lot of different conversations, and we went there, et cetera, and we're very happy to discuss with them, and I think very soon we, we're going to be able to, to, to have the film. But uh, it's, you know, it's engage- I went to engage myself with her, at the same time, around the corner, I can meet young filmmakers in Cannes as well that say, oh, here's my film. I look at the leaflet. I say, okay, that's great. Looking at it, making sure we watch everything as well because it's a respect. We, we owe uh, you guys as well to, to watch and to, uh, to, 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 to read what you're giving us because it's, um, it, it can be hard because, as you can imagine, uh, there is, a, as I was saying, another supply and my inbox is literally exploding today but it's all about what makes the difference. You know, it could be a headline, it could be a, a visual. Um, it's understanding the, the era you're, t- you're in today. And, um, and it's, it's fascinating and it's, uh, it's a joy to, to communicate. And now, I mean, this filmmaker, Chloe Robichaud, she's preparing her second feature. And because she, basically she did a short film that was in Cannes competition. She did that film that was in Un Certain Regard. And now she's uh, preparing the second feature, which I really, really uh, hope to see very soon. I don't know where, in which festival it will be, but I'm, I'm eager to, to understand that. And, uh, and it's a lot like this. We're also partnering with festivals such as Film Marseille, which is very specific um, in its lineup, uh, very close to Doc Leipzig in Germany. And uh, as you can imagine, we're very close to festival in general. This is where we, we watch uh, a lot of films and receive a lot of uh, submissions as well through this, uh, this thing because we don't fund a uh, film such as the, the BFI. We don't have this, this mechanic, but we rely on others and a lot relies on the, on the festivals. And it's, it's important for us to, to nurture this talent. And it, it is true that sometimes I might not have seen some of the films that were submitted to me because there's so many and I, I always feel very guilty about that. But it's, um, I mean, it's the same for any TV, you know, the people at Sky, uh, at Arte, they have so many submissions. And it's all about how you build 
uh, especially as y you guys, you're, you're all young and, and starting, how you build your first relationships, how you build your first uh, festival entries. Because uh, those guys, I mean, I, all those TV selectors, they're also in panels, they're also you know, intervening and browsing in festivals. And it's important to, uh, to have a clear visibility. Your, your pitch needs to be clear because we have so many of them that it stands out immediately. Like yeah, we have like a nice sleek image, something clear, precise. It's, uh, it makes a whole world of difference. And also just one last thing, which is uh, something pretty important as well, is you have to have um, a nice control, a very important, not even nice, uh, important control on the assets you have in hands uh, to promote your film. Like when I have a, a submission where I have uh, a file or a Dropbox folder or whatever, where I have steals, a trailer, short synopsis, you know, everything packaged, sleek, simple, it makes a whole difference. Because like sometimes when we're interested in the film, there is no image in the email whatsoever, and then I'm browsing Google and I'm finding something in 320 by 180, and it's like, you know, it's a stamp, so I can't see much. And it, it, is, uh, it is hard sometimes, but know that we have uh, a, lot of, a lot of digital capacities which have their own problems. It is very important to have that. Because even today, um, some distributors and sales agents, they're having troubles to sell films uh, also because either they don't have or they forget to have or, you know, lots of different things. I want to put the blame on them neither. Uh, to have those, those materials. And it, it, it makes a whole lot of difference. Well, that's all we've got time for, unfortunately. I'd like to thank Norman, Quinton, Sam and Ed for taking the time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Guru Live session from 2016. If you're a budding producer, get the lowdown on producing a debut film from a panel of Breakthrough Brits and the producer of an outstanding debut nominee. Find that at bafta.org forward slash guru.